I'm Karen Yakabuski, and welcome to another edition of the Opiongo Line. I'm joined by Danielle Paul and Roger Paul, as well as Mark Wormke. We're all members of the Opiongo Readers Theatre, and tonight we're going to tell you something about this wonderful old place we're standing in, the Barry's Bay Railroad Station. It's not very big, not even a thousand square feet between its four corners, but at one time it was spanking brand new and the station agent could even live upstairs with his family. That was back late in the summer of 1894 and so in honor of the station's 125th birthday, We thought you might like to celebrate its survival with us. You see, it's the last of its kind in all of Canada. At one time, there were 29 similar stations, some a little different than others, but all built from the same basic 19th century railroad design and all set down along the 264-mile, or 425-kilometer, length of the Ottawa, Arnprior, and Parry Sound Railway. That's the OA and PS Railway. At one time, the OA and PS was the busiest railroad in all of Canada carrying upward of 40% of all the grain that left Western Canada. It passed through Depot Harbor, the deepest freshwater port in the world, located at Parry Sound, the western terminus of the OA and PS. The eastern terminus, well, that's a little more difficult. It might sound like it should be Ottawa, But Ottawa was really only a way station as far as J.R. Booth was concerned. He was the man behind the building of the OEA and PS, and he knew that all the western grain, to say little of all those timber and wood products originating in what is today Algonquin Park, and the Madawaska and Bonshire River Valleys, when it made its way to Ottawa, those OA and PS trains had much further to go. To the St. Lawrence River Valley, to Montreal, to the Atlantic Seaboard, in fact, to the rest of the world. You see, J.R. Booth didn't just see himself as a lumber baron. He saw himself as an international businessman, which means that all international freight and passengers on the OA and PS at one time or another passed through Barry's Bay. In fact, they may have stopped here as well. Yet all that is left of Booth's great OA and PS rail line, his mighty world web of trains and ships, is this little station, 
built from the ground up 125 years ago this very August. The OA and PS Railway itself took five and a half years to construct, whereas this station took only six weeks to frame up. It was built as an integral part of the John Rudolphus Booth Empire. So who was he? Some people see him today as just another 19th century lumber baron and entrepreneur who had bought a 250 square mile timber limit in 1867, the old Egan estate up near Madawaska, for less than $50,000. And this after he had won the contract to supply lumber for the new Parliament of Canada as it was being built for the new Dominion in Ottawa, created in 1867. By the early 1890s, however, J.R. Booth controlled timber limits totally well over 7,000 square miles. He also centralized his operations in Ottawa, where he built for his times the largest sawmill in the world. But back in 1884, Booth also built his first railway, the soon-to-be-forgotten Nosbonsing and Nipissing Railway, a tiny five-and-a-half-mile portage line that carried timber from Lake Nipissing to Lake Nosbonsing, which then connected to the Ottawa River. Booth then added the M&O rail line that ran from Ottawa to Coteau Junction, where it hooked up with the Grand Trunk Railway just west of Montreal. Then he bought Coteau and Provence Line Railway and Bridge Company which by 1890 linked his M&O to the Central Vermont Railways. And so by finally building his very own Ottawa, Arnprior and Parry Sound Railroad, he could soon put the pieces of his puzzle together and finally connect Western grain and Eastern timber to the vast American seaboard markets of Boston and New York as well as the markets across the Atlantic in the United Kingdom and Europe. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. If not a little complicated, too many dates, too many numbers. This station is really a simple place. And back before this station was built, Barry's Bay was indeed a much simpler place. You don't have to believe me. Just listen to one of our town's founding fathers, Thomas Patrick Murray. He was born near Barry's Bay in 1880, and when he was only 14 years old, and when the OA and PS hiring agents came to town, they offered him his very first job. The first time I came out to Barry's Bay was to pick blueberries in 1885. There was nothing in the village of Barry's Bay other than three or four scooped shacks that Jimmy Drohan called a blueberry hotel. And Billy Kerwin had started a blacksmith shop across the road from the hotel, but he couldn't make a go of it, so it was closed up. 
There weren't many trees on it. They called it the Norway Plain because all the good trees, the good red pine, had been burnt off in a big fire that had passed through. And that was why it was good for blueberries. But in 1889, Jimmy Drohan got Jim Devine, a carpenter, to come up and put a single roof on his scoop shacks and called it the Blueberry Hotel. Then Frank Stafford arrived here in 1892 or 1893, and he wanted to build his store. We moved into Barry's Bay ourselves in 1889 because there were no stones on the new farm in Barry's Bay. My father was tired of plowing on the old farm that had stones. A terrible heavy frost killed the wheat there, and so Joe Prince came over on a Sunday morning and said that the Wolsheskis and Trebinskis, they lived on his, this farm in Barry's Bay, moved off after the frost. After my father bought the farm, Billy Martin told my father, Oh, I hear you bought the Frosty Farm. We moved into town in 1889, up near where Arnie Murray's is now, and it was all jack pine. Flat jack pine, not the tall stuff, from where the Bank of Montreal is now to right up to Arnie Murray's. When we were kids, we used to come down and sit in the jack pines across from the Blueberry Hotel and watch all the fighting and dancing going on. My uncle, Pat Murray, had a 50-acre lot between Drohan's Hotel and us. We were the next lot towards Sobolski's Lake. In 1891, there was a terrible calamity when the diphtheria was here. There was a Polish girl working for Drohan, and she got diphtheria, and she went down home to Wilno. And to tell you how bad it was, in the Mahan family at Rockingham, the mother died, and then about eight of the children. Only one of the children escaped. Finally, Dr. Chandler came up from Eganville. The government set him up, but nearly 200 people died around Rockingham. The Conways got it, the Billingses got it, and the Drohans got it twice. The two oldest Drohans died. The oldest was nearly as old as I was. That was back when we were living on the farm in Siberia. And they had a wake, and Dr. Kinder arrived and chased us all out. The next time they got it in 1891, another Drohan died. And that time my father was in there, but he never carried it home. Old Dr. Leader was in Brudenell. When I was five years old in 1885, there was a smallpox scare, and Dr. Leader came up to Billy Martins and vaccinated them. You could vaccinate yourself back in those days if you had the right stuff to use. As I was saying... I was a water boy on the railroad for three months when I was 14 years old in 1894. I was 81 pounds, and that was the year we got our first communion and got confirmed all on the same day. My brother Mick was with me, and he was two and a half years older. I was working on the railroad, and we got off one day. Imagine, we walked to Wilno and no breakfast. I got paid 50 cents a day and had to board myself. A man got a dollar and a quarter and had to board himself. I used to bring the water across the lake in a canoe. There were two springs on the Sobolski farm that came bubbling out of the ground there, and I used to get that, though some of them thought swamp water was good enough. When we were living on the farm out past Siberia, Henry George and a carpenter from Eganville showed up with a broad axe, a saw, and a couple of other axes, and they wanted to make the timbers for the foundations out of virgin red pine. 
When they started to build the railroad, Bill George built there. His brother-in-law, Marston, was killed with a railway blast. Two other fellows were killed as well. The blast had gone off, but not all of it went off, and they got fooled, and so when they went back, they were killed. Then the Dunnigans from Killaloo showed up and built the liquor store close to the train station, and they rented it to Bill Brady. Bill done a great business because there was all kinds of drinking going on. There were big crowds of Finlanders working on the railroad, and about a hundred Italians, all camped at McLaughlin Sawmill down near those tall red pines at the lake. Every so often, the Italians would buy a couple of sheep and a bag of potatoes from us, and they'd have a feast because they lived mostly on bread. They had a boss who was always all dressed up, and he did all their business for them because he could talk English. Those were terrible hard times, so the farmers had to build the railroad. When I was 14 that summer of 94, I was working for John Mackey, a farmer and a man of about 65 years of age, who was a subcontractor of O'Neill and Ferguson, who had 10 miles of track to build. Mackey was a farmer, and he had two miles to build from the crossing in town to Martin's Curve. He had about eight team of horses building the grade, two team from the township of McNabb, Duncan Moorhead and George Shaw, and a Gibbons from Northcote, the best land in the world. Gibbons was an elderly man, and he had the best farm in Northcote. Then there was Stacy Box and George Thompson from Admaston, all farmers. Our team worked there as well when they weren't working on the farm. There wasn't much farming that year except to cut the hay. And Jimmy Drohan had a team working the railroad as well. Somebody was driving for him. When the new people started to move in, Mrs. Billy Martin said it was too bad that they were just settling down to starve. She was living on the hill at the post office. As soon as the railroad was built, Josh Billings started to build a hotel right opposite the station. And then Ben Kish, the section foreman, built that house that Jordans ended up living in. And another section man, uh, Perkins, he built down across from the creek. And then Tom McLean, he built a house too. But the first church built here was a Methodist church, right over here on the corner where the Anglican church is now. We had a Methodist minister, and Barry's Bay back then was a Methodist town. Father French and Brudenell only came to see us very seldom. And so when the Methodist minister moved here, it became a Methodist town. And so the Protestants moved right in. We went to a Protestant meeting at Bill George's. There was a bunch of them boarding with us on the farm, and they were working on the railroad, building the wooden trestle up near Carson Lake. Jim Stewart was boarding with us. He was a section foreman. And Adam Clark and Tommy Short and John Sanderson, who was a big man, and he worked on the section with Bill Polner. And so we all went down to Bill George's to a Protestant prayer meeting. And that old minister from Cross Lake, Schmidt, who was educated in Germany, was there. And he was the man who started the settlement at Cross Lake. He was a wonderful man who'd walk out 10 miles from Cross Lake and have a service at Madawaska for the railroad builders. And then he'd walk down 10 miles to Bark Lake and have service at the Bark Lake School. And then he'd walk to Barry's Bay and have services at Bill George's at 8 o'clock Sunday night. But on Monday, he was back in Cross Lake behind his own plow farming. He was quite the preacher. And there was another tall old fellow with a whisker. I don't know who he was. 
Anyhow, the Methodists and the Catholics got along well. The Murrays, my dad and Pat Murray, they built the Methodist church. And so they began to move in. Bill Brady built that building that Martin Daly lived in. Patty Reagan, a carpenter from Brudenell, came up and built it. They hewed the logs right out there and built it. The first Polish family to move into Barry's Bay was Joe Prince, who had a farm and a sawmill out at Greenans Creek before moving into town. He was a pretty well-off man. When the railroad went through, it was the only place they could get lumber. I was there when they spiked the rails and the first train arrived. It was just flat cars, but they had a band playing on the end of the working flat car that was used to build the railroad. That flat car was called Jumbo, and it had two places with rollers to slide the rails down to the rail bed where the ties were all laid. And they had the gauge all set, and then they'd spike them down. On that day, they were working after hours. It was about 7 o'clock in the evening, and they were about 100 feet below the crossing at Murray's store, and they come right up to the Opiongo Line crossing, and then they quit. Later, a sinkhole developed, and they had quite a lot of trouble and had to fill it with gravel down there in that beaver meadow. It was a couple of weeks before they could build it up, and they continued on. The locomotive, number 63, wasn't very big, but it was big enough that it sunk down into that sinkhole. Weeks later, a train with boxcars came in, and we thought that was the big thing. We thought that's where the passengers might be riding inside. But when they brought up some real passenger coaches and left them at the divisional point, well, when we saw them, we thought they were grand. It was a surprise. And then the railroad conductor, John O'Boyle. He used to go to our church and he'd walk right up to the front pew wearing his conductor's uniform with brass buttons. And Jerry Lynn was the brakeman and he was all dressed up too. And he had a coat with brass buttons. He was a big man, 225 pounds. And we're in church looking at all that thinking, boy, oh boy, wonderful. They never thought about money and they were so proud of their jobs. So they ran the train from Ottawa to Barry's Bay and it stayed all Sunday here, and on Monday morning at 7 o'clock, it went back to Ottawa. They built the station as soon as the railroad come in, and they had it pretty well built when <laughs> Stafford and Booth quarreled over the land. And they went to work, and they moved the station two miles up into the bush. They put in a little siding about half a mile from Billy Martin's post office, and they set in a little boxcar and fixed it up for a station and the station agent boarded up at Billy Martin's. Frank Dunn wrote a piece about it and said it was an awful disgrace, a scandal. He said, it resembled a wilderness inhabited by rabbits and uncivilized people. He didn't like the Martins, you know, and so he wanted to get a crack at them. Billy Martin was a brother-in-law of John S.J. Watson of Rockingham, the nobleman who had married a Martin, who was supposed to be his chambermaid in the Watson Castle over in England. According to my father... Watson was given $60,000 in gold and asked to leave. And in 1856, Watson came out to Ottawa, and the first baby was born in Ottawa, and the next one was born in Rockingham, where he had brought a bunch of Englishmen with him, and they were mechanics, and they built a flour mill there, and a sawmill, and I think a water mill there. We used to take our wheat down there and get it ground into flour. Oh, and he could cut lumber, and I even think he had a planing mill there. And he built a church and a home for the minister. Sometimes he acted as minister himself when he had no one to lead the service.
Tom Murray would grow up to have a very interesting career of his own, not only in the lumber business, but equally in politics. Indeed, he would often leave this very station in the first half of the 20th century to go to Toronto, Ottawa, or Montreal. He even met J.R. Booth on occasion and was mightily impressed. But then, Booth was somebody who could impress. For one thing, he was a fighter. Many special interests were forever setting themselves against Booth from the beginning, and many more grew to oppose him, and especially his OA and PS railway line. The Toronto Board of Trade and the towns of Trenton and Port Hope, to name a few, but none was more ominous nor more powerful than the Canadian Pacific Railway, the mighty CPR. The two combatants, J.R. and the CPR, often met in open court, and occasionally their opposing rail crews even met in the open fields and sometimes in seemingly open combat. Regardless, Booth always seemed to win the day, with one notable exception, when he met his litigious match in Frank Stafford, an enterprising little merchant who set up shop in Barry's Bay in 1893. But that's another story for another time. Indeed, no battle in the 1890s was more tenacious nor more important to J.R. Booth's success than the one involving Haggerty Pass. To cross the Madawaska Highlands, just about any westbound railroad would run into some serious trouble around 12 miles west of Eganville. A train would have to begin a continuous climb of 425 feet in only 9 miles, That was an average grade rise of 9%. And at Haggerty, just east of Wilno, mercifully, there was a pass, but room for only one rail line. The CPR and J.R. Booth both wanted it, and so they went head-to-head for the railroad rights to that pass. Surprisingly, for those who always bet against J.R. Booth, the CPR lost. And so, the Haggerty Pass made his day and reinforced J.R. Booth's growing international empire. But if Booth won, more than just the CPR lost something at the Haggerty Pass. Three men in particular would lose their lives there in the worst industrial accident of the building of the Ottawa, Arnprior, and Parry Sound Railway. But more on that later. First, let's take another look at the old OA and PS, but this time through the lens of some very interesting old newspaper clippings. March the 11th, 1892, the run through Mercury. George Manton's survey party of 24 men left Ottawa on November 20th, 1891 to survey a new Ottawa, Armprior and Paris Saint railway line 
through the Nipissing district. They returned March 8, 1892. They had surveyed 120 miles of the road to the west and traveled over 500 miles of rough country on foot. Costs of the survey trip were about $60 per day, $2.50 per man. The party met with extraordinary difficulties, having to cut their way through a wilderness of dense bush, traveling on snowshoes, and dragging their supplies on sleds behind them. The country is not settled at all, and only a few trappers and hunters were encountered. Mr. Mountain's survey plans, profiles and estimates are to be presented to Mr. J.R. Booth in mid-March. 15th April, 1892. The Renfrew Mercury. Dr. Dowling, the MPP, introduced a deputation consisting of J.R. Booth and Mr. F. Fleck, as well as several Renfrew area men of importance. The company wished to ask for government aid in building that part of the OA and PS railway, which extended through the colonization and unorganized districts. July 1st, 1892, the Renfrew Mercury. The Armfire Chronicle chastised the town of Renfrew for not following their lead by voting for a subsidy for the Ottawa, Armfire and Paris Saint Railroad. Armfire granted the OANPS two separate subsidies totaling $120,000. Meanwhile, Haggerty and Ridges Township proposed to raise $2,000 to buy OANPS stock. The vote will take place on July 18th. September 30th, 1892. The Renfrew Mercury. Eganville ratepayers voted down a proposal to split a $1,500 bonus between the OA and PS Railway and the CPR's Atlantic and Northwest Rail. October 7th, 1892. The Renfrew Mercury. After presentations by Mr. Fleck, Mountain and Smith, the Ottawa Board of Trade unanimously carried a motion to submit a report to City Council recommending a $150,000 bonus for completion of the following. $50,000 be paid when the road is completed to Armfrier, $50,000 when completed to Renfrew, and $50,000 on the completion of a fine new station in Ottawa. The motion was carried with 2,938 in favour and 396 opposed. October 28, 1892. The Renfrew Mercury. Since late July, when Mr. George Kidd, MPP and County Warden, turned the first sod near Carp, the following work has been completed on the new Ottawa Arnprior and Perry Sound Railroad. Forty teams of horses first began work at Carp, and by early August had completed six miles west of Carp. By the end of August, ten more miles were added as grading had been completed in Huntley, Fitzroy and March townships. By early September, grading was underway between Kinburn and Galetta. And, as of today, Bruder and McNaughton began building railway bridges over the Mississippi River at Hobbs Falls, as well as bridges at Carp and Hunter's Creek. All three bridges are expected to be completed by the end of the construction season this year. April 28, 1893, the Renfrew Mercury. The OA and PS has opened tenders for the construction of its line between Armprior and Renfrew. 
In another matter, the Canadian Pacific Railway filed plans overlapping the Ottawa, Armprior and Paris Saint Railroad along three quarters of a mile on the shores of Golden Lake. Meanwhile, Mr. J.R. Booth again interviewed the provincial government asking for a grant of $3,000 per mile for the portion of the line between Barry's Bay and Scotia. May 30th, 1893, the Ottawa Journal. The new Ottawa, Arnprior and Parry Sound Railway provided an account of the first passenger coach to traverse their new line from Ottawa to Arnprior. It reached a speed of 25 miles per hour on an unballasted portion of the line. George Mountain, J.R. Booth, and other OA and PS officials were aboard. August 23, 1893, the Renfrew Mercury. The OA and PS rail plans includes a line carefully graded and ballasted, but when it was suggested that trains would be able to travel at 40 miles an hour, Mr. J.R. Booth replied, that his trains would have to go at 60 miles an hour, or he would have no use for them. The plan also required the original rails to use more than 3,000 ties per mile, or 350 more per mile than any other railway in Canada. September 1st, 1893, the Renfrew Mercury. James Prince has been contracted to build five and a half miles of the new Ottawa, Arnprior and Perry Sound railbed from Neitzel's Farm in Grattan Township to Indian Point in South Algona. September 22, 1893, the Renfrew Mercury. On Wednesday, there was a rumour that there has been more trouble between the Canadian Pacific Railway and the Ottawa, Armprior and Paris Saint Railway, this time over the level crossing at Armprior. It is said that there had even nearly been bloodshed between the workmen of the two lines. We learned that the difficulty was no more than this, that the diamond at the crossing was put in on Sunday. But before the OAMPS can run their cars over this, it is necessary that they should have 1,700 feet of rail laid on the opposite side of the track, on which their trains can stand clear of the CPR lines. In building this 1,700 feet, the OAMPS workmen ran their line close to the CPR track so that they could carry the rails only over the few feet of trackway. But the CPR authorities then gave instruction to their men to tear up the OA and PS line on their property, compelling the OA and PS workmen to cart their rails across 66 feet of land instead of over the CPR railway track only. But as soon as the CPR workmen tore up the OA and PS track, the OA and PS men promptly laid it down again. And there the affair ended, at least up to the time of the Renfrew Mercury's information. Meanwhile, construction of the new OA and PS rail line has reached nearly the Golden Lake. The new construction of the line has also been recently inspected by George Mountain and the government engineer, Mr. T.D. Rideout. November 10th, 1893. The Renfrew Mercury. Ballasting between Round and Golden Lake has been commenced. Ballast is provided from Galetta Pit. Laying rail through the town of Renfrew to Admaston Township began in the past week. December 22, 1893, the Renfrew Mercury. Regular passenger service commenced four days ago on December 18th between Renfrew and Ottawa 
The first train of two passenger cars arrived on time, despite very cold weather and heavy snow. The only passenger from Renfrew was Mr. J.A. Ferguson of Armprior. No passengers alighted in Renfrew, despite reports in the Ottawa Evening Journal to the contrary. Meanwhile, Mr. Heald, the contractor for the Golden Lake to Killaloo section of the new OAMPS rail line, will work all winter on cutting the line through the rugged terrain. January 28, 1894. The Eganville Enterprise. This week, the Ottawa Arnprior and Perry Sound Railroad will commence regular delivery of freight to Golden Lake. Passenger service will continue to only service Ottawa to Eganville. February 3rd, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. Mr. M.J. O'Brien of Renfrew will commence work next week on his contract west of Killaloo on the OAMPS. He will employ 60 men for the present and will increase the number considerably in the springtime. March 23, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. Mr. M.J. O'Brien, a contractor for the OAMPS, has the Wilno Pass cleared and is commencing the rock cut in it, which is very heavy. The materials will be used in the long dump at the foot of the pass. The dump will, in some places, be 41 feet high. March 24, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The contract for next summer work on the OAMPS railway construction was let this morning. It went to E.F. Fakier. He will construct 35 miles of road from Barry's Bay, the present terminus of the line, 107 miles distant from Ottawa, to Long Lake, 142 miles from Ottawa. This is considered the heaviest part of construction between here and Parry Sand. Including the 35 miles given out to EFRTA, the OAMPS will construct 77 miles of roadway this summer, which includes 20 miles let to William Heald, 12 miles to MJ O'Brien through the Haggerty Pass, and 10 miles to Poland and Fitzpatrick at the farthest end of the proposed line, extending towards the terminus of the old Paris Sand Colonization Railway. This will leave about 70 miles of the road left to complete next year. March 30th, 1894, the Eganville Enterprise. Work on the construction of the OA and PS Railway west of Golden Lake is being pushed ahead and much progress has been made during the past few weeks. Should the weather continue fine, Mr. Heald expects to have his contract completed a month ahead of the time allotted to him. Mr. Booth has decided to immediately let the contract for another 35-mile section which will bring the road to the Egan Estate. This portion will be built this summer, and next year, the remainder of the line through to Elmsdale, the point where the OA and PS will make connection with the Parry Sound Colonization Railway, will be finished. Then through traffic will be commenced from Georgian Bay to the seaboard. April 6, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. Lots of lumber is going through on the OA and PS. It is going to Albany and Boston. The Ottawa Armprior and Paris Sound Rail Line was damaged by spring flooding between Eganville and Golden Lake. Repairs are underway. The divisional point will be at Whitney. April 13, 1894. The Eastern Ontario Review. 
work on the OA and PS Railway. The spring floods have damaged a roadway of the OA and PS line in several places between Eganville and Golden Lake. They are now busily repairing damages. The construction from Barry's Bay to Whitney, a distance of 35 miles, will be pushed through rapidly. It is said the contractors are bound to have it completed by the 1st of November so as to be ready to ship lumber from the mills being erected by the American company which purchased the Patty and Purley limits. The company took in last winter a portable steam sawmill to saw the necessary lumber for their new mill. They expect to have it ready by the time the OA and PS reaches here. April 23, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. Almost every day, men are leaving by the morning train to secure employment on the construction of the Ottawa, Armprior and Parisan Railway. This morning, there was a large gang of Italians going up to work on one of the contracts above Golden Lake. So far, there has been no steel laid this year, but it is expected that men will shortly commence doing so. April 26, 1894, The Ottawa Journal. Laborers have been gathering at the OANPS Railway's Head of Steel west of Golden Lake to commence work for the construction season. Twenty-eight and a quarter miles of OANPS line has now been opened to Golden Lake. Mr. Wilson will continue working on his four bridge contracts this year as well. And Mr. Heald continues to work west of Golden Lake. The contract for the line as far west as the Egan Estate has recently been let. May 1st, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. Queen's Park. A cash subsidy is granted of $3,000 per mile to OA and PS contractor, Mr. Fauquier, to build 35 miles of track west of Barry's Bay, conditional on fire protection. These railways would open up new and important sections of the country and be close to large tracts of mineral and natural wealth and would open up valuable agricultural land. The Toronto Board of Trade opposed this provincial grant on the grounds it was practically a private rail line and as such not entitled to a subsidy. May 14, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. Mr. George A. Mountain, Chief Engineer of the Canada Atlantic and Ottawa and Perry Sound Railway, returned from the far end of the latter line this morning. In conversation with the Free Press, he said that the construction of the Perry Sound Road is advancing rapidly. The contract to Killaloo is winding up, and the track from Eganville to Golden Lake has been thoroughly ballasted. This part of the road will be ready for government inspection in a few days, and when this is over, the OA and PS will be in operation for 84 miles from Ottawa. The work is well advanced to the Haggerty Pass, 109 miles from here. And from that point to the 129th mile, ground has been broken. From the latter point up to the 142nd mile, the right-of-way is being cleared. Frost is still to be found in many of the swamps. The company expects to have track laid this year from Ottawa, 250 miles westward. May 16, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The 10-mile section of the OA and PS Railway above Golden Lake has been sublet by the contractor, Mr. Fauquier, to J.C. O'Neill of Kempville.
May 20th, 1894. The Renfrew Mercury. Over 1,100 men are currently working on the new Ottawa, Arne, Pryor, and Parry Sound Railway as far west as Wilno. The OA and PS has put the call out for another 100 men and 30 extra teams of horses for their railway construction currently under contract with O'Brien and MacDonald. Construction crews recently entered the Haggerty Pass to mile 129 near Wilno, and the OA and PS has begun laying steel west of Golden Lake with as many as 175 ballast cars per day delivering to the head of steel. George Richardson is under contract beyond Eganville. Earlier in the season, Mr. Weddell won the contract to build the railway bridge over the Bonshire River. And by the end of May, Killaloo construction was wrapping up and the track from Eganville to Golden Lake had been ballasted. June 6, 1894, the Renfrew-Mercury. Laying of steel commenced from Golden Lake West. 175 ballast cars are loaded every day. June 26, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The steel of the OA and PS is now laid to Killaloo, about 15 miles beyond Eganville, and the work of construction well advanced over that distance. The OA and PS railway has been surveyed by the government inspector for 12 miles west of Eganville to enable the company to draw the bonus for that distance. July 5, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. In the course of a few weeks, passenger trains on the OA and PS Railway will be running to Killaloo, a point 20 miles beyond Eganville, the present terminus of the line. July 8, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. Plenty of whiskey peddlers on the OA and PS, and doing a good business too. July 21st, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. Over 2,000 men at work. Yesterday, Chief Engineer George A. Manson and some of his assistants came down from the scene of active operations between Eganville and Killaloo and report all going on lively. Mr. C. D. Chitty, who is hiring men and sending them forward as they can be grouped together, was also a passenger down by the afternoon train, having been up to the works with a lot of English navvies he had secured in Montreal through the emigrant agent there, and they are said to be a desirable lot of men. Thursday was payday in Killaloo, depot from which the shackles were issued, and as can readily be imagined, there was a high old time. It so happens that musical Killaloo is not a city nor a town where architectural beauty is considered, but is composed of a few shanties of the original backwoods type, at nearly all of which fire water is retailed, an extra effort being made by the different licenses, for the county of Renfrew collects the revenue. To pass around the fluid freely on the day, the men receive their pay. And accordingly, yesterday, there was fun and frolic, with a knockdown not infrequently a la Donnybrook in honour of the occasion. There is more or less grog drinking on all public works, and where the gangs are composed of Swedes, Finlanders, Poles, Italians, Frenchmen and Irishmen, Added to which the last gangs of the Cockney type, it can readily be imagined that occasionally there are rough times. The trouble in the management of such an agglomeration, even motley as it is, would be much minimized were there no selling of liquor. 
But revenue is sought after, and as the licensees appear before the commissioners armed with the necessary petitions and forms, the licenses are granted directly without regard to the interests of the men or the employer. July 21st, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. The work of construction on the OA and PS line has reached within two and a half miles of the famous Hegarty's Pass. Work is carried on, in some cases, by night and day gangs. The rails are laid as far as Killaloo, the trains crossing the bridge at that point yesterday. August 1st, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. Mr. Donaldson, superintendent of the Ottawa Armprior and Paris Sound Railway, has returned from a trip to the far end of the Paris Sound Road, where construction is being pushed in a westerly direction. 560 men are hard at work and still is being laid steadily. There are something like 600 men working on construction west of Eganville. Steel is currently being laid west of Killaloo. The location of the next station has not been fully decided upon yet. The contractors preparing the roadbed through the woods now have now more than a thousand navvies employed and more are being taken on every week. The reported strike among these navvies seems to have been incorrect, for, with the exception of a very few Frenchmen from Hull, these navvies are all steady at work. August 1st, 1894, the Eganville Enterprise. There are rumours of several diphtheria outbreaks in the area. And no wonder, says the local doctor, some very small houses are accommodating 12 to 18 men. When one gets up, another tumbles into his warm bed. Some men have died of diphtheria. August 2nd, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. On Tuesday last, a sad accident occurred at the works of the OA and PS Railway in the vicinity of Barry's Bay. A charge of dynamite exploded, instantly killing three men and injuring several others. August 10th, 1894. The Renfrew Mercury. Fatal dynamite explosion. The Ottawa Evening Journal of Friday last published the following account of the dynamite explosion mentioned in last week's Mercury. It will be seen that it varies from the report received here as to the number of men killed and injured. The particulars of the dynamite explosion of the OA and PS railway construction at Barry's Bay, which resulted in the loss of three lives as mentioned in yesterday's journal, are now at hand. Mr. G.A. Mountain, chief engineer of the OA and PS railway, returned to Ottawa last night from a trip to the vicinity of Barry's Bay where the accident occurred. In conversation with a journal reporter last evening, he stated that the three men who met their death were loading a hole with dynamite, had placed three cartridges in position, and were about to place a fourth when the explosion occurred, from what cause will never be explained. The three men were blown many feet high in the air, and one of them, named George Marston from Carlow, was killed outright. Another, named William Keller of Palmer Rapids, lived for an hour, and the other, an unknown Englishman, died four hours afterwards. The bodies were horribly mangled. During the night, coffins were made in which the remains were placed. 
Keller's remains were taken to his home at Palmer Rapids. The other remains were buried in the vicinity. The accident occurred in a part of a rock cut at the western outlet of the Haggerty Pass. Between 15 and 20 men were working within a few yards of where the explosion occurred. George Marston of Carlo was the only son of Mr. Marston who, many years since, kept the Basin Depot house at Barnett and McKay's Depot at the Basin. Mr. Marston subsequently kept other stopping places between Renfrew and the Basin and kept a store in Lower Centertown, Ottawa. George was then a growing boy of about a dozen years of age and gave promise of turning out a young man of good character and disposition. His father, after leaving Renfrew, took charge of Mr. McGuire's lumbering farm near Mattawa and still resides there. Mr. and Mrs. Marston came down by the CPR from Mattawa and took the OA and PS train to attend the funeral of their unfortunate and lamented son. August 10, 1894, the Brockville Recorder. A row occurred on the OA and PS at Killaloo on Saturday, says the Pembroke Standard. That will be remembered for some time to come by at least one party. Archie Stewart, a navvy working on the line, went into Mr. Grant's store and started to tear things up generally. He fired around crockery and had broken several articles when Grant ventured to protest. A fight ensues and Stewart bit Grant's ear clean off. The latter carries it around to show friends and vows that when he meets Stewart, the latter will have something to remember the meeting by. August 14, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. Four carloads of horses and 100 men passed up the OA and PS Railroad this morning for the St. Anthony Lumber Company's limits beyond Barry's Bay. It was this company that bought the old Purley limits in this locality, and this is the first season that the company will work them. It is evident that the company intend making a big cut this winter since they have begun operations in the bush so early. The company will be erecting a sawmill about 60 miles beyond Killaloo, where their logs will be cut, and the lumber shipped over the OA and PS Railway and Canadian Atlantic Railway to the States. August 17, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. The Eganville Enterprise, in its report of the late fatal dynamite explosion at Barry's Bay, says that the foreman, Raymond Dunning, was within six feet of the charge when it exploded and was blown by the concussion of the air fully 150 feet up the side of a hill, but fortunately fell on a brush heap and in a few minutes was able to get up. Marston was found about 30 feet from the point of explosion resting on his knees and face. He was still breathing, but unconscious, and died in 25 minutes. One arm and one leg were broken, the upper part of his face filled with gravel, and his breast injured with stones. An Englishman, William Deep, had his clothes completely torn off, and one leg and one hand had been blown off. He was delirious, sometimes calling on his mother. He died in about three hours. He was from England and had been in Canada about a couple of years, and the day before his death had been saying he would go to see his mother next year. Louis Keller's body was fearfully mangled and disemboweled. He was from Palmer Rapids and leaves a wife and four children. 
he and his brother intended to start for home the next day. The remains of young Marston were taken by his sister and brother-in-law, William George, who resided at Barry's Bay, to Eganville and interred in Melville Cemetery, Reverend Mr. Rattray officiating at the funeral. Mr. M.J. O'Brien informs us that the foreman was not blown so far as above mentioned, but only about 20 feet. Meanwhile, Mr. Heald, the OAMPS rail contractor, has moved his men from Killaloo to his upper contract at Long Lake. The rails are now three miles past Killaloo, all the rock cuts are completed, and Mr. O'Brien, the contractor for this section, expects to be finished soon. August 18th. 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. Government inspection of the latest section of the Ottawa Arnprior and Perry Sound Railway from Golden Lake to Killaloo was performed yesterday by Mr. Thomas Rideout, Chief Engineer, acting for the Dominion Government, and Mr. McCallum, Chief Engineer for the Provincial Government. On board the special train were Mr. J.R. Booth, Mr. George A. Mountain, Chief Engineer, and Mr. Morley Donaldson. The latest part of the new road is getting pretty well beyond the bounds of settlement. The country is, for the most part, hilly and wooded, and will no doubt be used for grazing in a few years. It was 10 o'clock last night when the party returned to Ottawa. Trains will be run as far as Killaloo in a short space of time, the station house and yard at that place being all ready for occupation. The next section will bring the line into the famous Hegarty Pass on which men have been engaged in blasting a rock cutting since early spring. August 24, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. A contractor with a number of men will start next week to build a railway station at Barry's Bay on the OA and PS Railway. The track is constructed as far as the bay and passenger and freight trains will soon be running to that point. August 24, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. The directors of the OA and PS have received an application from near Wilno for the establishment of a skimming station there. An answer has been returned that the application will be favorably entertained if a sufficient number of cows to supply cream can be obtained. About this there can be little doubt. August 31, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. An enterprising Cumbermere merchant has purchased a two-deck steamer, 40 feet long, which will be conveyed over the OA and PS Railway to Barry's Bay in September. September 21st, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. The contract of Mr. M.J. O'Brien on the OA and PS Railway line will, it is expected, be completed by the end of this week. This will enable the rails to be laid some distance beyond Barry's Bay. The work west of this on the Farquier contract, on which there are a number of subcontractors, is being pushed rapidly towards completion. October 19, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. The OA and PS Railway reports that rail line is complete through to Carson Lake. November 23, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The OA and PS railway contractors have released their roadbed and rail laying workforce for the season, though blasting and clearing will continue through the winter. November 30th, 1894, 
the Huntsville Forester. The Ottawa, Armprior and Parisire rail line from Barry's Bay to Apiango Forks passed government inspection by Mr. Lynch, the government engineer. Rails have already been laid 12 miles beyond this point to Madawaska, where it was announced the divisional point will be located. By the time the Ottawa, Armprior and Parry Sound Railroad opened from end to end, from Depot Harbour to Ottawa in late 1896, J.R. Booth had become the largest private railroad owner in North America, as well as the owner of his own fleet of grain ships, to say nothing of his status as not only Canada's premier lumber baron, but in fact by 1892 he had become the world's <coughs> leading lumber baron. He was an impressive man, and in the words of one of, of his biographers, he knew the forest as a sailor knows the sea, and his success was largely due to the fact that he never overestimated its potentialities. But in 1904, he sold his railroad interests, the whole kit and caboodle, to the Grand Trunk for $14 million. And 11 years later, in 1925, at the ripe old age of 98... John Rudolphus Booth died. Luckily, he was not alive to see the beginning of the end of his beloved Ottawa, Arnprior, and Parry Sound Railway. That started in 1932 with the widening of the Welland Canal, which then allowed Great Lakes ships to bypass Depot Harbour. And along with plummeting grain prices during the dirty 30s, it was only a matter of time. Worst of all, in 1933, a crucial trestle bridge between Cache Lake and Lake of Two Rivers, deep in the heart of Algonquin Park, was forced to close due to safety concerns. It was never rebuilt, thus cutting the 264-mile OA and PS rail line in half. Both ends of the line continued in service, but the Parry Sound to Cache Lake portion ended all service in 1952, while the Lake of Two Rivers to Ottawa section didn't end so much as a bang, as some sources suggest. But as we well know in Barry's Bay, it ended with a whimper in the early 1970s. In one sense, J.R. Booth took on the CPR and won. In another, he was lucky enough not to live to see his Ottawa, Arnprior, Parry Sound Railway ride into railroad history. Still, some of us here could swear that if ever there was a ghost to rattle the footboards right here in Barry's Bay after the midnight on a full moon, and there are probably more than a few of us who believe in that sort of shenanigans and malarkey, that the ghost would have to be John Rudolphus Booth. Where else could he go? We are the end of his line.
very last station left on his beloved OA and PS rail line. A perfect place, don't you think, for an old ghost who loves the smell of 125-year-old timbers or that peculiar fragrance of dusty embers left for decades in an old back waiting room stove like the one right over here. That does it for us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our show, the first of several anniversary shows that we will be doing over the coming year as we celebrate the 125th birthday of this grand old station. And if you liked what you heard tonight here, don't be shy about dropping something in Philip, the donation jar at the back. He belongs to the station keepers, a volunteer group who would like to bring some life, if not a few ghosts, back to this station. I'm Karen Yakubuski, and for Mark Wormke, Danielle and Roger Paul, and our producer Barry Connolly, we'd like to thank you for taking a few moments to think about this wonderful old OA and PS station. Good night. Good luck.